know that feeling when everything just seems to be falling into place? Things just seem to work out in a way that's too good to be true? That's exactly what it was like for our guest this week, Daniel Capillaro. See, after he learned guitar and started singing, a chance encounter with a record producer in New York City got him in the door with major studios all over the country. And this one, he was just 19 years old. But, and there's always a but, Daniel faced a difficult decision. One that ultimately stopped him right in his tracks and put him right back at square one. It was a tough break and it came with many lessons, but Daniel's perseverance allowed him to reset and flourish as a lyricist and music producer. Today, he has songs with superstars like Chris Brown and Pitbull. Listen to his story right now on The Big Break. So I am very excited today to have Daniel Capillaro, the hit songwriter behind songs by Chris Brown, Boys to Men, and Pitbull, here with me on The Big Break. Daniel, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, you guys. Appreciate it. I'm very interested to, because like you're, you're a singer, you're a songwriter, you've done a bunch of different things in music, but like, were you musical as a child? Or like, when, when did you start to to know or get a sense that you wanted to make music a career? How did that happen? I grew up with a very musical father, and we uh, moved a lot as a kid. So music, to me, was always in the house. My dad was always playing it. My dad plays blues harmonica and guitar. Okay. And uh, his brother, my uncle, is in a punk rock band called Fear. It's been around since uh, the late 70s. Okay. Uh, so it was always in the house, and we were listening to blues and R&B, and, and then in driving from state to state, finding different homes, he would always be blasting different songwriters and, and artists on the radio. So it wasn't until I was about 13 years old that I got the courage to ask for a guitar and start playing on that, and the singing just kind of came naturally. It was like this, a ton of emotion needed to come out, I think, during that era of my life it was, it was... So why were you guys moving around so much what was the uh what were your parents doing on the road my, my my dad honestly just didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up and so as a result we we he changed careers a lot and we just kept we kept moving okay. so it was we I mean, they're from outside philadelphia originally um, my mom's from levittown my dad's from outside philadelphia and uh we we lived in Philly for a little while outside Philadelphia at a place called Bucks County. Okay. And then um, we moved to New York City, right outside New York City. And then my dad decided to become a, a priest at that point, wanted to go to seminary to become a priest. Okay. And, uh, and then we moved to Tennessee. And so I got absorbed into the country music scene down there and the culture of the South. And then we moved back up to Philly, then down to Virginia. So I, I was moving around. We were both, my brother and I were both moving around. A lot, a lot. Oh, man. So do you remember what kind of guitar was that guitar you got when you were 13? Do you that, was a, that was a tak, uh, Takamini, Takamini okay. guitar, the old J- James, James Taylor kind of guitar. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, a great, it was a great guitar. It had a little built-in EQ on it. And, um, and my dad taught me a couple chords, and I was just listening to CDs and tapes and stuff trying to imitate. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Yeah, man. So, so then you're – you're doing that. You're doing the therapy. You're getting, getting out all those teenage emotions, right? Exactly. And, and doing yeah. your thing. For sure. Um, For sure. So then what was the next big thing that, that happened to you, right? So you're bouncing around the country. Yeah, know? we were going. We had moved. We were in Tennessee. I graduated high school in, uh, the heck was I? It's in Virginia. I'm, I, get, I get confused, too. Uh, in, Virginia, in Virginia, I graduated high school. Then I went to George Mason University for about an hour and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and decided that school wasn't for me. And I was too anxious to work. And so I went back up to New York. And I, was, um, I had a callback for Rent, the musical. And, um, okay. Yeah, and so this was for the touring group of Rent. And so I was leaving 
the rent call back at 19 years old with my guitar case, walking through Bryant Park. And there's this producer by the name of Philip Aaron who's sitting in the park looking very, very important. And he was sitting with some spiky-haired MTV-looking kid at the time. And he calls me over the table and says, oh, you're a musician. And I've got a little bit of an edge, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course I'm a musician. i got a guitar case. What do you think this is? So he yeah. says, well, play, play me a song. So I play him a song in Bryant Park, which I now know you're not supposed to do. And then I play him another one. And he signs me to a production deal and says, go down, back down to Virginia, get the most marketable songs that you have and meet me back up in New York in six months, and I'm going to bring you into Sony. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? Wait, so, so, like, so wait, this is a rando. You, this, you, is like, a, you, a dude, this, rando. this is a total rando. And I'm a 19-year-old kid. This is the first time I'd have anybody at all, at all show this kind of like, specific interest with like, a game plan. And I'm thinking, is this, guy, is this guy full of it? Or like, is, he, is, he, is he being honest? Like, what? So I go back down to Virginia where my dad was at the time. And my dad, when I say my dad went to seminary, I mean, my, my dad talks and looks like Robert De Niro. And he's got, he's, my dad's Italian and he's Italian Irish and he's got, he's got an edge. So I tell my dad yeah. a story and my dad doesn't believe anybody. And he goes, <laughs> he's like, I'm going back up with you in six months. I'm meeting this guy face to face. I'll see if this guy's full of shit. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I record a little demo of like 20 songs or so that I had written at the time. And what I thought was marketable and um, not knowing what the hell that really meant at the time. And then we drive up to New York and we meet him at his place in Jersey City. And sure enough, he says, here's where I want to meet him. Here's what I want to introduce him to. This is what I want to do. And so we thought, well, there's no harm, no foul. Let's take a, ch let's take a chance. So we, yeah. we signed this production deal. And then next thing I know, in a very short period of time, I'm at Sony in New York recording this EP, which wasn't even a term back, back then, recording a demo of what was supposed to be five songs was turned into like eight. So I had to cover Suspicious Minds. We recorded with Pink. We recorded with all these tunes that I had written that I compiled and recording at this like beautiful recording studio. So we're recording in Studio B or C. I can't remember which studio, but he says, hey, you want to meet, you want to meet George Clinton? He's in the, he's, and I'm 19 years old. I'm going, P-Funk? Are you serious? Of course I want to meet George Clinton. <clears throat> so we take, we go in the next hall and George is in the booth doing God knows what. But he's, he's mumbling in the mic and there's Chinese food everywhere. And this is at 19 years old. I'm going, what the hell, man? This is like surreal. <laughs> this, whole, this whole moment, I don't know what's, what's going on. And then as soon as, the, as soon as the EP's done, as soon as the eight songs are done, this guy, Philip start setting up meetings. I mean, dude, this was all within a very short period of time. And we had, we had hit the studio, we had recorded everything, and we hit our first meeting, I think, all within a month. Like, the whole thing was done what? super fast, man. This, wow. this guy's goal was to get me signed, to, you know, get his check, <clears throat> and, and hopefully, you know, get me a deal, which is which, which his production deal. So I was learning, like, just like my dad taught me, I just, I was learning every, I was absorbing every move he would make, you know, and trying to like put that in my back pocket going, oh, that's, that's how that works. You know, this is how this works. How would you describe a production deal to somebody out there who hasn't had one put in front of them? Well, production deal now, you know, I think it's a little different than, it may be the same. I, I know that there are certain kinds of production deals you can sign now, you know, they're called development deals or management deals. Yeah. 360 deals I know are, are, are popular now. But basically, the deal I had with this guy was he was going to produce a certain amount of songs. He was then going to own a portion of that song, uh, the master of that song. He's the guy that set up the deal. He's, he's producing it. He's the, real, he's the real producer. So whether he's the one engineering it or he's bringing someone in, he's getting a portion of the master. So I'm giving up a portion of that as the artist. And then when he gets the deal, whatever advance I get from label X, Y, or Z, he's going to take a, a percentage of that, which is his finder's fee. So that's really how a production deal works. The producer's really responsible for making, you know, getting all the contacts, setting up meetings, 
you know, uh, making sure that if there's another producer, another singer that he wants, uh, he or she, the producer wants to get on that said uh, demo that they're responsible for getting that. So anyway, I, all this stuff that he did, Philip, I was kind of learning as we went and um, the story continues. I mean, it gets, it gets pretty wild, but. <laughs> so, so, so then what happens next? So you're, you recorded this. Yeah, and then- we recorded this. And the next thing you know, I'm at, um, I, he says, I got you a meeting with uh, L.A. Reid. And I went, you mean like, at, like at, and he was at Arista at the time. And I don't, I don't yeah. know who L.A. Reid is when I was a kid. I mean, I, I heard of him. I heard of LaFace. I heard of L.A. and Babyface that had this thing. And then he went off to Arista. And he said, well, they just signed uh, Avril Lavigne, this artist out of Canada. And this guy's A&R uh, that went up to Canada found this country music st- uh, kid Avril Lavigne who was singing country music and essentially brought her down to New York and said, "You're doing punk rock now. You're not, you, you know, retire your cowboy boots. You're going to do punk punk rock now." So she's she's got Skater Boy out on the radio. She just worked with The Matrix. She had worked with all these cool producers, and so Arista was looking for L.A. Reid specifically was looking for the male version of of Avril Lavigne at the time. And so that's kind of how I had my first introduction with LA. And back in those days, dude, we, we would go in, you know, artists would go in and with, for me anyway, with an acoustic guitar into the meeting and I'd sit down and play him acoustically a tune off of this EP that we had, or this demo that we had just recorded, just me in LA. And that was that meeting. I got a call back and then another call back. And the next thing you know, I got 14 people from Arista in the room. And it's me. Well, in the interim, between the first meeting and the fourth or fifth meeting with LA and his team, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm getting coached. Yeah. You know, so I'm getting. I'm saying I'm, this is how it's going to happen. Philip would say this is how it happened. I'm going to go in first. You're going to wait in the hallway. You wait by the elevator. I'm going to strike up the conversation. Then you just start playing right out of the elevator. Don't even wait. Just come out and play. He says. He says this is how Pink got signed. Pink jumped up on LA's desk and. She, she kicked his, the picture of L.A. and his wife across the room and it smashed against the wall. And, and, and L.A. said, you're nuts. I love it. I must. And that's how she got signed. So we, need, we, need to get, we need to give you that edge because you're too nice. Now, is your dad still with you at the time? Like, is he, did he vet Philip? He's like, is, this is good? Or My dad, yeah, my, my dad vetted Philip. Um, my dad's an amazingly great judge of character. He vetted Philip right out of the gate from the beginning. but. My dad has an immense amount of trust in me and kind of like let me explore this yeah. independently, yeah. Which, which, was, which was really important in ret- retrospect. I, I don't think it would have been the same had he been being a dadager, breathing down my neck the entire yeah. step of the way. Yeah. He really let, let me take the reins. But, you know, as a good father, he would always check in and say, you know, let me, is, this doesn't seem right or this seems a little fishy or maybe we'll ask a lawyer about this. Yeah. Or, you know, he was always... He was always being a really good counsel yeah. for me. But yeah, man, we just, we, uh, I hit that uh, interview with him and we had it down. Philip and I had it down pat. We, we had a, a, just a slew of meetings with uh, Peter Edge and Dave McPherson at Columbia. And we were just going from meeting to meeting. And I would do the same thing. I'd wait in the hall, have him go in first. Um, we had a shtick down. We had, the, we had the song I would perform. And, and it would go over well at every meeting because they weren't expecting it. Yeah. They were kind of, you know what I mean? And so it was a shtick of, of sorts to be able to, um, you know, to be able to, to march in playing. Right? To march yeah. in, yeah, to sort of own the room. They want to see the whole package. They don't want to just hear a, a tune. But it was surreal, man, to have at 19 to have, you know, L.A. Reid be playing your song that you just finished recording at Sony on these gigantic monitors in his office with 12 people bobbing their heads. And I'm sitting there in like leather <laughs> pants and a tank top looking like, looking like uh, the lead singer of Creed with long hair going, what the hell am I doing? What is this? This is so, this is so, so surreal. <laughs> Man. So, so then you have it all of these meetings, right? And, <laughs> and, and you yeah. and Philip are trying to engineer, presumably trying to engineer a bit of a bidding war. Basically, yeah, dude. And, and basically, Philip says to me, okay, man, we've, we've done New York. We've drained the swamp. We've done everything here. We've hit Jive. 
We've hit Atlantic. We've hit Epic. We've hit Columbia. We've hit Warner. We've hit, we hit every label that we could have hit here in New York, Arista. Let's go to Los Angeles. And I went, well, how the hell are we going to go to Los Angeles? He says, well, you just bought a Jeep, right? I said, yeah. I mean, I just bought a Jeep. It's my first big investment as a kid. Yeah. I hear I buy I buy a car like, you know, months before I moved to New York City. And I'm thinking, what an idiot. Like, why would I buy a car? Where the hell am I going to garage this thing? So I get in my brand new 2001 Jeep Wrangler SE in Hunter Green and with the top down. And Philip Aaron, this very good looking black guy, and myself get in my Jeep with my guitar case, my suitcase, and four suitcases of Phillips, two of which have white t shirts. One of them has. <laughs> What, this is no, no, no joke. One of them has all his shoes and the other one has his toiletries. <laughs> so we're set, right? And we decide, we're, we're, try, yeah, we're traveling in style, man. So we're driving, the two of us, you know, I'm in like leather pants and a, and a, <laughs> and a, and a cutoff tee. And he's got all this, he's got his Christian Dior sunglasses. And we're in a Jeep together driving through Alabama, Mississippi, <laughs> Louisiana. And I'm playing all these little coffee shops and bars that he could sneak me into. Um, and it's just the two of us with the top down driving from uh, Virginia. We got off at, no, we left it from North Carolina and uh, drove all the way to Los Angeles together. And it was, um, That's awesome. it was surreal, man. I'm surprised now we didn't get killed in some of the cities we were in just based on what we look like. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but we get out to Los Angeles and, at that point, I thought, okay, well, we're here. What's, what's next? I'm essentially living out of my car and don't have any money. And he's been, he's been you know, helping get some hotel rooms and stuff for us. But he's anxious to get a, another offer on the table because we had this sort of soft offer from Arista. And um, next thing you know, I'm in a Whole Foods in Hermosa Beach, I think. But what's the opposite of New York City? And I'm by the yep. beach watching chicks play volleyball and stuff. It's awesome. Yep, yep. And, uh, <laughs> and then he calls me and says, hey, Lil, I just got you a meeting with uh, Jimmy Iovine at Interscope. Uh, why don't you come over? He really likes, he says, I'm at it. I said, how the hell did you do that? He says, I was at a car dealership. I was at a Lexus dealership and Craig David was there and he knows Craig. He says, and I played Craig your CD in one of the, one of the cars on the lot. And <laughs> Craig loved your voice and said, so he set up the meeting for you, but you got to get down here now. So I'm like, well, I don't even know where is Interscope. He's like, it's in Santa Monica. I said, I don't know where Santa Monica. I didn't know anything. <laughs> and you know, when you first moved to LA, dude, like you don't know, but you know, you know how it is. Like nine miles can take yeah. you two hours. You know what I mean? Exactly. You don't know how yeah. far to go. So I get in my Jeep. You know, I'm I drive out to Santa Monica with my guitar, and and I meet I meet Jimmy's nephew before I meet Jimmy. I meet Jimmy's nephew dj something or other morale i think his last time dj morale yeah, exactly yeah. so dj had just is bragging to me about he just signed 50 cent they just signed 50 cent he was the one really responsible he's telling me oh you know this guy's got he's been shot eight times or 12 times da, 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 da. and i'm thinking yeah. and i had already been in a lot of these meetings we had just left the meeting at universal for instance and i'm sitting there and this is a lot of the coaching that i had had from Philip, he says, you know, I want you to know something. He says, don't take shit from anybody. He says, just because you're, just because you're kid, just because you know, don't take shit. If they start, you know, if they start going down the wrong way, sense, sense that, and you have, you have every right to walk, to get up and walk out if you, if they're, if they don't treat you with respect. And I thought I really like that, you know, being growing up yeah. Italian and growing up Italian American and growing up with that is, you know, my dad always saying, you know what, you show respect, but you also deserve to have that be reciprocated. So I'm sitting yeah. in this chair at Universal and I, whoever the head of A&R was at the time, it's a woman, she asked me, she says, what are your musical, who are your musical inspirations? Well, I grew up listening to Paul Simon and James Taylor and Otis Redding and Toots Thielman. And, and so I start listing all these influences and she looks at me, she says, yeah, but James Taylor, yeah, he had Sweet Baby James. And I, th I said, yeah, he did. I love, I love that song. She said, yeah, the lyrics, though, are so complex. And I said, well, yeah, they are. I love that song. I think they're really great. He said, yeah, but your song is not, it's not Sweet Baby James. Your songs aren't like that. And I, and I looked at her and said, yeah, well, that's, I'm only 19. 
And she says, yeah, I understand that. But she says, there's a, there's a depth to your lyrical, you're, you're, you're mentioning all these people and I'm not hearing that in your music. And I, so I said, you know what, jo- I think her name was Jolene. I said, Jolene, you know what? I said, I don't want to waste any more of your time. And I said, more importantly, I don't want you to waste any more of mine. And I got up, I grabbed my guitar case while Philip was still sitting in his seat. I turned around and I walked <laughs> out of the door and it's just him and her in the room. And I, I didn't, and dude, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I got to the elevator and I'm pushing down like a hundred times, like just get in the damn elevator. Let's just get the hell out of here. So the elevator door opens. I walk in just like a movie. Philip's standing right there, and I can't tell if he's pissed off or if he's. I don't. I couldn't tell the look on his face because he's standing there. Because he he left too. What is he gonna do? Stand there? Yeah, stay. In the, he yeah, gets exactly. in the elevator. He's not saying a damn thing. And as soon as he gets in the elevator, his cell phone rings. And we're standing there, and he pulls out his cell phone. He goes, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. And he hangs up. He says, she wants to see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, dude, I, it was like a learning lesson that all this stuff was just a game. You know, it's just, it's like a test. It's an audition. It's how do you react? You know, how are you going to, and not that that's the right thing to do is to get up and walk out, um, but it was, it's a test. And so it's sort of. But it, it, it worked. Well, dude, walking, walking out, out worked. worked. So similarly, <laughs> here I am now with DJ. DJ's telling me that he signed 50 Cent. He's telling me about all about 50 Cent. And I just drove an hour and a half, and I haven't eaten, starving. I don't have a place to sleep. And I'm like, what am I here for? Are we talking about 50 Cent for yeah. the whole day? Like, what, why am I here? Yeah. Did you like this music, or what's, yeah. what's, what's going on? So I interrupted him. I said, you know what? 50 Cent sounds awesome. Do you have a chance to listen to the demo? <laughs> So then he says, yeah, yeah, I really like it. You know, I want you to meet my uncle Jimmy. Uh, he's down the hall. So we get up, we walk over. I meet Jimmy. I'm sitting in this gigantic office. And again, dude, I'm 19. I don't, I don't, I'm not educated in so far as the, the depth of what these people have done, especially Jimmy Iovine in the music industry. I mean, I, I didn't realize I was meeting yeah. a big icon. You know, I knew that he was the head. Of Interscope, yeah. I knew that this was the guy to meet. I knew that this is the guy that could make my, you know, could make my career happen. And like magic, dude, I was got back to DJ's office, and they said, "We want to offer you a deal. We'll work out the specifics, but we think what you have is great, and we think you've got some really solid things." So that's when we got on the phone and called LA and said, "Hey, listen, we got an offer, a official offer on the table." What do you guys want to do? And there was, like you said, like we're trying to get a bidding war. Phillips trying to get a bidding war. So we get the offer from Interscope, and now I'm going, man, I'm flying high. Da, 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 da. This is going to be awesome. And simultaneously, I had been doing a little bit of acting um, when I was in New York, and I, that was a goal of mine when I came out to L.A. that I would say, oh, maybe I'll continue to do some of that. So my manager called me up in New York and said, hey, listen, they're remaking the monkeys on NBC. It's just a pilot. Um, but it, they, why don't you go in? I think you'd be good for it. So I, dish, I auditioned for it and it was a callback, another callback, another callback. And it was just all, there was, there was a mass amount of people not knowing at the time that this was the beginning of what now would be known as American Idol, but this was way before American Idol. So 19 Entertainment was the one that was really pushing this whole pilot for NBC and was the one that went into business with Simon Fuller, um, the head of 19. Um, to who bought the name The Monkees um, and was wanted to create a TV show that was basically a remake of the show. So I get cast as the lead singer of this band, along with Jay Baruchel, uh, uh, David Delator. Uh, Jay Baruchel, as you know, is from Freaks and Geeks, and he's been in a slew of movies. And yep. uh, David Delator, yeah. Antonio Cupo is on a TV series now, and uh, who else? Chris Carmack was among those. The guy from the OC. So it's just a bunch of kids that it just I auditioned for, and I booked the role as the singer of this New Monkeys. They were called the New Monkeys, and um, the pilot was just horrendous. I mean, just so so bad, dude. <laughs> it was like a judge played by an actual orangutan. I mean, it was so bad I couldn't it can't even go into details about it. But very long story short, or very short story long, I I get cast as lead singer. I get a call from my my. Uh, lawyer at the time in New York and says, "Hey, uh, Daniel, we got a we got a problem here." I said, what, "What? What? What do you mean? This is awesome. I just got a TV show. I got a record deal. Man, this is this is popping. I've been out here for a month. This is how could how could this be a problem? I'm making moves. Yeah, I'm, I'm, making I'm not moves. even twenty. Yeah. <laughs> he says, "Well, 
congratulations on getting the pilot. Congratulations on the rec record offer. By the way, it's $850,000. So just so you know what we're dealing with. And I thought, oh my God. He says, yeah, which was great. So I said, well, this is awesome. He said, well, it might be. He said, but you got to make a decision, dude. And I said, what do you mean I got to make a decision? He says, you, you, you can't do both. I said, why can't I do both? He says, because the show with NBC, he says, they're doing a deal with 19 and you can't have two record deals. So you got to either sign with 19 Entertainment or you got to sign with Interscope. Oh, man. And I said, so, you know, who's the first person I call? My dad, of course. I'm on my phone with my dad for yeah. like, I think I had to make a decision, Gary, like within like 48 hours. Like I didn't have any time. Like it was, and I didn't know what to do. I just, honest to God, man, I didn't know what to do. And so, and very smartly, I, I, my lawyer decided, you know what, we'll do negotiate. If you do the pilot, I will, I will see if they will hire you as one of the writers, one of the songwriters. Because they're going to do a lot of, they're going to do some remakes of the show and stuff. Let me see if I can hire you as a song. Oh, interesting. Show. Okay. Yeah. That, that way, you're going to get publishing. That way, you can get publishing on the songs um, and writing on the songs as opposed to just being a cast member. Yeah. And, you know, being a cast member back in 2002, this was, 2002, was not bad. I mean, we were making 50 grand for the pilot, making like 15,000 an episode, and it was like 10 episodes. And you're, so you're, was, not, you're 19. So you're like, and I'm like, no, dude, and I'm, to me, I'm like, I have three hundred and eighty-one dollars in the bank. I'm like, this sounds awesome. Exactly. I'm looking. I'm like, maybe I'll buy a house in Hermosa Beach. This would be sweet. So, I <clears throat> all the all the na- na- naivete of being young. Yeah. So I I uh, I call my dad. I talk to him. I reason it out. <clears throat> I decide that you know what, it makes more sense to do the show. I said I'm going to get long term wise. Let me just ride this out because the show, it's got network. I'll be able to potentially do both. If I, my acting career blossoms and I can go, always go back to music. So here I make the most difficult, one of the most difficult phone calls I still have ever made in my life because my dad says, you have to do this. You, know, this is, you made this bed, you have to call him. Yeah. And I called Philip and told him that this guy, Philip Aaron, that I had signed a production deal with, that I want out of the deal and that I'm turning down everything you i'm turning down, down your scope turning, turning down jimmy turning down dj i'm turning down him a guy that i had driven cross country with a guy that had, had put faith in me and put all his money and time and everything else and it was the hardest decision i ever had to make at the time because i said you know this is what what, what should i do i mean you know what i mean so yeah. i turn i turn him down obviously that didn't go over very well um, yeah, yeah. Was, I can he imagine. Was, he was pissed, <laughs> and and rightly so, you know. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> and I decide to sign the deal with uh, NBC, and I, I get all excited. I get the deal signed, yada yada yada, and we're set to shoot the pilot on a Thursday. And Tuesday, I get a phone call, and they say everything's off. I said, "What do you mean everything's off?" He says, "Pilot's not happening. NBC pulled out." I said, what do you mean NBC pulled out? They said, Simon Fuller, who owns the name The Monkees, decided that he was going to create all these monkey bands all over the world to help promote the name. And NBC caught wind of that and said, absolutely not. We would have the right for branding on this. And we don't want that to do it. So find another network. Oh. So I'm on the phone, like trembling. I went, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. And I've got no job, nothing, nothing, Damn. zero. I'm starting at ground zero. Like, what do I do? Do I go back to New York? Do I call, I call Philip? You know, obviously he's not talking to me. Yeah. The ch- you, know, you turn Jimmy Iveen down. It's not like he's going to take a phone call and be like, oh, it's okay. Second chance. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was, that was done. So I went, <clears throat> what do I do? You know, and I became friends with one of the cast members in the pilot. and so. He and I got an apartment in Studio City, and I scrounged up a couple bucks that I had had, bought myself a tuxedo at Aardvarks on Melrose, and got a catering job that took me into the restaurant business for 13 years and helped build my catalog so I could build that up and finally sign a publishing deal and get my, get my butt back on track. Yeah. But talk about paying your dues, dude. That's, Damn. that's the whole story of how I got it to L.A.
As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that are getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. So, so you're basically, you think you're on the, on the precipice of just a, a big acting career. You turn down Jimmy Ivey and you turn down what? $850,000 advance. Yeah. Yeah. But remember back in the day, day, dude, like back yeah. in the day, people get signed for that. Now, yeah, no, 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 no they won't it. even forget about it. They don't even do albums anymore. They're signing single deals. Just they're not there. Yeah. yeah. Man, okay. So, so now you're in the restaurant business, and then wh- how are you? Stra- you're- so I strategized. I strategized it. I strategized it a little bit. I said, you know what? I speak a little Italian. I said I was at a catering this catering company for a little while, and I became friends with this guy. I worked at this re- restaurant, Italian restaurant, and I, they had plans of opening up a location in Brentwood. And I thought to myself, what better place to be than amongst the people, the celebrities, and producers and game changers that live in the, you know, they eat in the same neighborhood that they live in. And if I'm with a bunch of immigrant Italians, I'll stand out like a sore thumb anyway, because I'm the only American working there. Yeah. So I thought, perfect, perfect, perfect. And it worked to my advantage. We had the restaurants called Amici Brentwood. It's on 26th street in San Vicente. A little shout out to them. It's awesome. And I've met some of the, you know, my lifelong family there and everybody from my first night, <laughs> one of my first nights, the first week or so, waiting tables there. I had, you know, I'd seen a celebrity or two here and there. It wasn't, a, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of experience with that, not being in LA very long. And so I'm, yeah. I'm waiting tables there, and the owner says, "Hey, go to table 19 and tell them the specials." We had a list of specials, so I went to the table, not not make not looking at who's at this table of of eight people, and I literally look up and lock eyes with Tom Hanks. And next to Tom Hanks is Steven Spielberg, Rita Wilson, Martin Short, Mel Brooks, and Bancroft when she was still alive. And they're all sitting at one table, like the Hollywood elite. And I, dude, I go mute. I don't know what to say. I have all the specials complete. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm wearing. I'm like, don't know where I'm standing. I don't know nothing. So I grab their full bread basket and I leave the table. I say, I'm going to get you guys some more bread. <laughs> and, and, I, and I leave to go to the kitchen like a like an imbecile with my tail between my legs. And I, like I said, I can't go back to the table, guys. I just can't, I can't, I can't do it. So that was my first. That was like my 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 in- introduction. But yeah, I mean, everybody was there. J- I became friend friendly with J.J. Abrams and his wife and Laura Dern and and John Travolta who got helped get me a gig on the on the show American Crime Story. And it was just. It, it, it sort of worked to its advantage to be someone who wasn't specifically there for the opportunity, but just to be present in the room to sort of absorb and to be amongst the people that I wanted to be amongst, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think people can smell desperation a mile away. And I learned that at a young age, thank God. And so, you know, the moment someone goes to it, goes to somebody and, and, and asks them for something without getting to know them first, it just, you, it just comes off as cheap and, you know, disingenuous. Yeah. And they can sense that. And I, I had that experience a lot. I remember Bonnie Hunt, who became very 
uh, I became very friendly with. And had, I asked Bonnie um, while working at this restaurant and getting to know her if um, how I could, you know, if I could be on her show. And she, you know, looked at me like, you know, well, what, what? She said, "What? What do you do?" And I said, "Well, I play music. I write music and I sing." Well, give me a CD. So I went out to the car immediately. In between, you know, the owner's like, you got to go to this table. And I'm like, shut up. I've got to go to the car. She's asking me. Bonnie Hunt's asking me for something. This is much more important than table water. So I run out to the car and I get a CD and I come back in and I give it to her, not thinking anything of it. And she says, I'll take a listen. But literally two days later, I get a phone call from the producer saying, we want to book you on the show as a musical guest on March 1st. And I was just like, what? Are you kidding me? (laughs) What are you so, serious? Wait, can we back? Can we back up for one yeah, second, dude. though, real quick? Uh-huh. So, so you're while you're working at the restaurant, you're still making more music at night, weekends, <clears throat> whenever you can fit it in. Right? At the time, I yes, I was still making music. I was still writing music. I was still performing. I had a band that I had put together um, that was a backup band of sorts. That was a uh, an interesting group. It was like I had cello and piano and and uh, it was gypsy esque and it was jazz infused and pop infused. And yeah, so it was, <clears throat> I was still playing, still writing, but I hadn't met anyone yet that, um, okay. that really sort of helped get the music that I was writing to the people that I needed to get it to. Um, yes. And so, so now we're back to Bonnie. Now we're back I just to want to Bonnie. make sure. You- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I spent those, I think I met Bonnie seven years into me working there. Um, and I had met, and most of the people that were coming in, you know, Richard Rudolph, and there were a couple of musicians that, you know, um, that would come in that I would be, be friendly with, uh, but, but nothing to the effect of me having, like, the balls to ask them <laughs> to, like, yeah, exactly. collaborate on some, something together. And Carson Daly yeah. would come in periodically. But this is sort of like, this is, my, this is my introduction to just being like, well, if you don't ask, you won't get anything, you know? Exactly. So here I am asking her to do it, and here is something that's actually worked. And next thing I know, I'm on national television, ironically, on the same network that um, got can- you know the, the show that I got it got canceled, the pilot that got canceled for, full yep. circle. So here I am performing the song on the Bonnie Hunt show, and it was after that experience that I you know obviously met the house band and became friendly with Nate Morton, who's the drummer for the voice and, um, and, uh, and Rafe Bradford, who's the bass player for the show. And, um, and I, I met all these wonderful people and, and I, it gave me a sense of confidence to go back to this restaurant life that, you know, you do something like that. And then literally the next day you're going back pouring Chardonnay for people who could care less what you do or who you are. It's a, it's, it's yeah. a very, it's a very real thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a very humbling experience to say the least to be on both sides. And, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, we went, we lived in a nice part of Westchester County, New York. And then we were homeless uh, shortly thereafter, living in a tent across the United States. I definitely had experienced both sides of the coin of having it and not having it. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was writing all the while. And it was around this time that one of the guests that you had had on on your show originally, Emil, Emil Gattus. My mom at the time was working at a furniture store, Cantoni on La Brea. Emil and his wife, they had just gotten married, went in looking for a rug. And my mom, being a good mom, says, hey, you know, your musician, your producer, you should meet my son. He's a singer. He's a singer and a writer. And Emil, you know, very begrudging. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) Hey, cool. Have have him email me. And it was, it was immediate. I sent him my stuff. He liked it enough to want to take a meeting. And we became friendly and then became really good friends and had started writing a lot of songs and t- together. And I was demo vocaling a lot of them. And I got to meet a lot of the people he was working with in the studio, in the building that he was working in, who were very influential and had you know, then fledgling, but now pretty massive careers. And then we just became friendly, and, and that's, when we st- that's when I got my first cut, was with, the, was with Pitbull. My first big yeah. cut. You know, I had, I had written yeah. for Tonic and Lifehouse and uh, Maxwell, and I had written for other artists before, but it was on a, for some reason, it felt like it was on a smaller plane. This felt bigger. This felt like 
yeah. you know, music had started changing at that point. And it was like very limited amount of artists were getting airplay. Um, and it was very selective. And so this was a chance for me to like get, you know, a cut. This was for me, it was like, yeah, man, this is my chance to get out of the rest restaurant. I don't have to deal with this yeah. anymore. And, you know, Emil's, Emil yeah. similarly has had restaurant experience. So he was, we were commiserating about this and he was always rooting for me to like, let's get a cut together so we can get you out of this situation. And, yeah. you know, the reality of, of it all, you know, without going into details, too, too much detail about it is, you know, you get a cut with a major artist, unless that song's a single, you're not making much money. So no. I didn't, you know, you don't know that going into it. You think, oh, Christina Aguilera, is you going to get a song with her? Unless, she, unless that song's playing on the radio, um, unless that song is being pushed as a, as a single, and you're just an album filler, you're not making much coin. You're really not. And so it's a good credit to have, and it certainly helps get you to the next. Once you're in that quote-unquote camp, they'll be more prone to listen to more of your stuff. But that's kind of where yeah. it all kicked off. And it was at that moment where I thought, you know what? that's it. I'm done. Like, I don't want to be here anymore at the restaurant. I got to hustle. I got to figure out ways to connect these dots to, to get me out. And that's when I started hitting up Arson Daly, who would come in, who played some of my stuff on amp radio and trying to negotiate my way out of the deal, out of the situation I was in to get myself either a publishing deal or a record deal or another cut or whatever. So I'd have enough money to quit. Yeah. And then it ultimately worked. So how did you, how did you do it? I mean, so, so you're in Pitbull's camp, right? You're in, well, I'm only in, not really, I'm only in Emile's camp. And, you know, these days when you're writing for an artist like that, it's, unless you're, you know, unless you're in the camp, in, in the camp, I never met Pitbull. Um, and Chris Brown, how we did on this song, or I should say how, how Emile structured it was very smart, was we had a song that we were writing for a band called The Wanted. Okay. And that was a pitch for the band called The Wanted. And Nazri Atwa of Magic worked across the hall with Adam Messenger. <clears throat> he was sort of our contact. From my understanding, he was our contact in with that band. And so we were, <clears throat> we were doing a, a bunch of songs for The Wanted and for One Direction. And okay. so this was a pitch for them. So it was kind of an EDM pop tune, um, much like what their stuff is. Yeah. And so we had this song. It's my voice on it. Well, Chris Brown was in the studio. And liked the hook and got, we got him on the hook. I should say they got him on the hook. So here we have Chris Brown on the hook uh, and me on the verses. And Chris had just released an album then. He wasn't releasing music at the time. So it was kind of like, well, great. Now we have him on the hook. What do we do with that? Yeah. And it was, it was at that time where very smartly they were like, well, let's negotiate to see, let's see if we can get this to a rapper who is, you know, we're going to be releasing an album soon and maybe we can get them on the verses. It's all political, man. It was all, yeah. uh, you know, it was sort of A to B to C to D kind of, kind of thing. And so that's when we found out Pitt was doing an album, had an album. They had worked together before. <clears throat> he didn't, you know, he didn't hate Chris <laughs> like, <laughs> some, like some of the other rappers did. And so we, we sent it over to him. He put his, as soon as Pitt put his vo- vocal on it, that was, it was game over. We had a song that was going to yeah. be on the album because we thought, you know, we've got, we've, got a, we've got a celebrity vocalist on the hook. We've got Pitbull on the verses. We'll send it over to the label. So we knew we had an album cut, at least. Yeah. Um, and we were actually told it was going to be a single by the label, which at that point I was like, oh, man, I'm going to be able to get a good pub, you know, really big pub deal and we'll be able to really get this thing moving and et cetera, et cetera. It didn't wind up being a single, but it definitely helped get me, you know, a Boys to Men song and and uh, and some other cuts that I had had after that as well, just because of the pedigree of people that I was working with at the time. Yeah, yeah. So between the Pitbull song, you finding out it's going to at least be on the album, and from when you started in the restaurant, how long was that? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> man, that was about ten years. <laughs> Damn. That's what I'm saying, dude, like <clears throat> about paying your dues. And I, I didn't know then when I first started, I, I just knew, I didn't know then about team building as much as the, you know, as being the most important part of this industry. So tell me more about that. Well, who should be on the, who's on the dream team? Well, I mean, you need, <clears throat> you need to have, you, you just, you need to have a network of people 
that, that do it all that are better than you. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the simple way of saying it. You always want to work with people that are better than you because mm-hmm. it, it makes you better. But yeah. the reality is, you know, you need the right producer, you need the right mixer, you need the right master guy, you need the right production team, you need the right writers, the right demo singers. And, and then once you create your camp <clears throat> of people that you're working with, it's easier to be able to get noticed or have artists come in. You know, I, would, I was learning quickly that like, oh, we live in Los Angeles and there's people here that want to be artists, obviously. Let's bring them in and they might actually have some money to put some, a demo together. We can actually make some money and have an income stream, you know, if we have okay. the right team in place. And so from the time I was started at the restaurant, the time I started working with Neil, and the Bonnie Hunt show around the same time, um, it was, I just need to be around, around celebrities. And that wasn't the case. I didn't want, I, that's, that's the wrong approach to just be around those people. That's not what's going to get you to the thing. You have to create your own, your own enterprise. You have to, on all of these celebrities, for the most part that I would be hanging around with, they created their own thing, but it was done, like J.J. Abrams, I remember, you know, J.J. got started by the USC film that he won. Um, he won a, a scholarship for because it, it was the best, best student film in the country. And he got a Steven Spielberg Award, I think is what they call it. And Steven knew JJ was a nerd and brought him into his house to clean all his eight millimeter cameras. And they became friendly. And next thing you know, Steven's co-producing Cloverfield with them. I mean, and so as a result, like these people that I met, they were so friendly and honest because they knew that their start wouldn't have happened had it not been for somebody taking a chance on them. You know what I mean? And so that's why I knew that Emil at that point was kind of taking a chance on me. And yet we were, we were making music together and it was good music and it was being noticed by people. And there was a role I was filling as a writer that he wasn't able to fill. And there was a role he was filling as a producer that I certainly wasn't able to fill. So that's why we made a good partnership and we realized that there's something special here. Let's build on that. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the, the team that I'm speaking of that's important for any writer. I think that it's a really, really, really important for writers to link up with producers, not just one, but several. If you're just writing, you know, learning, pro- learning production is important. Learning different softwares is important. Logic, Pro Tools, Ableton, you should learn how to use those, stuff, those, those things. It just gives you an extra, an extra weapon to use in the recording studio. And I also learned that going to Nashville. When I started going to Nashville in 2017, that that there were people in that you know Nashville is obviously the writing capital of the United States for songwriters, and here I would go into writing sessions in Nashville, and it'd be me and some dude on guitar, and we're writing a song together. And I I look at him, I said, "Well, what are we doing? Where's the producer?" In LA, we write with the producers so that we're recording while we're writing, so we have a product to leave with. He says, "Oh no, it doesn't work like that here." We write the song, I find a track guy, a track guy to build a track around the song. And I'm going, well, that's an added step. Why don't we just... Br-? So then I started thinking, well, let me just meet some producers out here and introduce them to the songwriters because they don't know who they are. They're only getting hit yeah. up to do these tracks. And instead of $500 a track, how about you actually get publishing on the song, which was unheard of. <laughs> so they were like, yeah. oh, well, yeah, if I get publishing or get writing on the song, then I'd, I'll come in and build the track for you. So I'll go to the songwriter and say, hey, listen... I just saved you guys $500, plus we're going to get the product a lot sooner. So it was this, you know, and not that that wasn't happening already in Nashville, but it wasn't happening on a, on a large enough scale with some of the writers that were complaining in Nashville. And again, it all goes back to team building. It all goes back to creating your team, creating your camp. Um, and yeah, it's, it's important in any city. Yeah. Man, so so if, I'm, if I'm trying to sort of sum up the advice that you've shared so far, right? Number one is don't take any shit and be willing to walk away. All right. Number one, number two, you have to build the relationship before you ask for something, but you can't just build the relationship and never ask because mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Bonnie. And, everything. Yeah. and then the third thing is, you got to have a creative team around you that complements you 100% and pushes you to get better and that are better than you. That's really yes. important. I think that a lot of times people get linked up with something and working with somebody and they wind up being a mentor to them. And not that that's a bad thing. Sometimes that's the right move. Sometimes that's the right place. 
um, and especially if there's friendships involved. But unless you unless you're linked up with somebody that's, that that genuinely has the contacts, genuinely has the expertise, genuinely is a a good and solid person, there's people that I don't work with anymore because I just truly don't trust them. And mm. I've been, you know, it's a it's this is the music industry. Uh, people are out yeah. for the most part. People are out for themselves. They're trying to get a cut. Songs get stolen on a regular basis. I've had that happen before, so uh, I've experienced that before. And so, yeah, it's definitely it's team building. When I when I said don't take shit from anybody, I think there, it's it's a sensitive thing because there's a lot of artists out there that I, I had a uh, conversation with a buddy of mine named Bradley about this too, and he. We both agree. He runs a company called Radium Media. They're awesome. Incredible. And so they do a lot of TV sync and everything else. And so anyway, we were chatting about the importance of team building and the importance of like, you have to know what's popular. If you're sticking true to your guns and you're writing music that you think is dope, but no one else thinks is dope, it's not dope. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> if you're, if you're yep. so gung-ho about like, I'm going to prove to everybody that this is the new sound it's an uphill battle. Like that's going to, you are going to be doing that potentially forever. So you have to listen to people and you have to test your music on people other than musicians. I love this. I love my wife more than anything in the world. And I think she's the best sounding board because she herself is not a musician. She was, she's potentially, she is, she is the representation of my audience. She's people that would be listening to music and I have and I have to listen to what she says. If she doesn't like something, you know, I have to know like well, what is it about the song that you not like? You know, what is it? Is it is it to this? Is it to that? Is the beat wrong? Is the lyric wrong? Like what is it that you're not resonating with? And sometimes just she just won't know. And you know, like music supervisors are just like, we'll know when we hear it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, you're just like, yeah, exactly. great, that, that oh, helps. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Thanks exactly. for Just go to the woods and write a song. <laughs> it's like, yeah, cool. So, but I mean, yeah, I think it's really important to like listen to music, listen to what's and listen to trends, follow trends, see what you know. Billie Eilish is huge right now. That the, the style of music that she's, you know, a lot of it's a lot of it's new. A lot of it's not new. A lot of it she's bringing, she's bringing back. And so you always have to keep your finger on the pulse um, with respect to like what's popular now. If that's the route you're going, if your goal is that I want to make, I want a publishing deal, I want a record deal, I want, you know, what, what is your goal? I always ask writers, I always ask artists that I'm working with the same, same, same question. What is your goal? What do you want to be doing? Do you want to be touring the world as an artist? Do you want to be a writer in a room with producers? Do you want to do both? What is it that you, what, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you want to do? And that's when I get the honest answer. And that's when we can sit down and talk. Um, working with a new guy now, named Ammo98. I'm going to introduce you guys to him. He's, he's a super dope rapper, singer. And awesome. he's, uh, he's, working on a, he's, working on a, he's working on a project right, right now. And, um, yeah. and I had the same conversation with him too. And he says, listen, dude, I, I want to do an album. And I said, well... You know, you know, you would do an album. It's gonna it'd be expensive, man. You want to do a whole album? I said, you know, no one's doing albums now. He says, well, this this is for me. I need I need to do this. And I thought, you know what? That's that's super dope. Considering, you know, how much work goes into doing an album, how much time goes into an album, sometimes how much how expensive that is. You know, yeah. you have to stick true to what you want to do and who who you are. But you also have to realize we live in a singles market. You know, days of albums are going away. Soon they're saying days of EPs are going to be going away. Record, lo- record labels are doing single deals. You know, so, uh, you know, the investment, the long-term investment is uh, the, short-term, the short-term result. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's what labels, you know, radio stations don't care about an album. They want, to hit, they want to hit song so they can move on to the next, the next one. That's what makes money. Um, Yep. And so as a writer and a producer, I think that that's important to realize and accept. Yeah. No, it makes, I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Do you have any parting advice you would give to, to your, yourself when you were 20 or to someone <laughs> out there who's <laughs> 20 and on the cusp of, of making a career out of this? What advice would you give them? Well, I mean, I, I think the biggest, I think I've mentioned most, most of it, so I won't be redundant on that. But I, I do think an, an, added, an added note is don't wait and, and write every single day. Um, 
Nasri always had a really great piece of advice that he had given me years years ago when I first met him, a couple few years ago when I first met him. Because he said that the more you write, the better you get. And yeah. it's like a muscle. It's like you go to the gym, you get more muscular, you get more toned. The same goes for writing. And the same goes for writing with other people. If you're only writing with yourself, uh, you're only writing for yourself. And if you branch out and you start writing with other people in the room, you'll be amazed at what collaborations will result in. And as partially why I say, you know what, listen, you're going to cost X as a producer to produce my track. What if I cut you in on the publishing and the writing of the song, which is unheard of in a lot of, in a lot of places? Yeah. Would, that, would that minimize the cost? I'll bring you in. And you know what you're doing indirectly is you're creating a partnership. You're creating a collaboration. You're creating a trust. I work with a guy named Steve Horner, who's a 2019 Academy Award nominee for uh, Best Animated Short. And Steve and I have a, a, a sync team called Red Boy that we're, we're putting out, like some uh, sync trailer promo music. And Steve's my partner. And Steve is brilliantly talented. He's a film composer, and he's a producer. And we got together, two odd ducks. You know, We would never normally be in the same room. What the hell are we going to work on together? I'm a pop writer, lyricist, singer. He does film trailers and, <laughs> and scores yeah. and stuff initially, you know, and we got together. He said, you know what, dude, let's, let's, let's make a country album together. He was, he lived, he's, he's, he's from I Iowa. Um, he grew up listening to traffic and a lot of the bands that I listened to growing up. And this is what I wanted to do. I was going to Nashville to pitch, pitch songs and stuff. And so we did. And so one song, song turned into like 10 songs and we just, and I, and some of them I wrote, entirely and i brought him in to produce and cut him in evenly so again going back to the team building yeah i think that that's certainly where one of the most important things in the industry and knowing your self-worth knowing where 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 you are in that what your strengths are just like in any business knowing what your strengths are is just as important as knowing what your weaknesses are and finding those people who could fill those weaknesses so that you don't have to carry that load and do as much of it as you can yourself i do all my own visuals I do all my own marketing. I manage myself. You know, I, I had to learn how to do that. And I think that's a, it's just an added tool. And at the end of the day, it saves me money having to spend some, pay somebody else to do an album cover or a single cover if I can do that myself. Yeah. And that's, I think that's important too. Yeah. So what's next for you? What are you, what are you working on that isn't out yet? Well, I just, I really, my, I've got a solo project that just launched June 25th with a single called Lie to Me. And it's, okay. it's doing quite well. I'm up like been out for a little over a month now and I'm at like 74,000 streams, I think so far. And so I've got a remix coming out this Friday of that song I did with a really, really talented DJ and producer named Oscar Martin. And uh, okay. that's coming out on Friday. And the official music video, which we just wrapped on, is coming out uh, next Friday on the 16th. Um, I'll have a lyric video out. And then we've got a second single that's going to be coming out soon. And again, like I said about the team building, I'm bringing in a director and a producer. And the hope is, the plan is that we're going to do all these videos together. And because the more you work with people, the better you get, the more communicative you can get. And all the cast members that I'm having in it um, are going to be in each of the videos as well. So it's going to be a series of singles coming out. Uh, the project is called just Daniel, but the A is upside down. So it's D-V-N-I-E-L. You can find me on Spotify okay. that way. And yeah. um, there's going to be a bunch of singles. And, and the plan is that I'm doing a lot of collaborations with producers. Max Billion, for instance, in Sweden, who I did Lie, lie to Me with. He's worked with a whole bunch of folks. And um, we're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing a lot of features with DJs and producers uh, internationally, in addition to having my own stuff, which is like a pop, a pop, uh, you know, just a pop sound. Really, really cool pop singer-songwriter. Some crazy. Okay, so we will put the links to, to your Spotify artist page and to the single in the show notes. And that sounds, it sounds awesome. Thanks. That's exciting. Thanks, man. Uh, but Daniel, man, I, uh, I appreciate your time today. Oh, pleasure. Talking us through it. It's, it's been thanks awesome. For, thanks for doing this. You guys are doing some really great work having this conversation with with folks like us, I really appreciate the platform and the chance to share yeah. a little bit about me on this thing. That's awesome. Well, we'll talk again soon. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Check out Daniel's independent projects linked in the show notes and be sure to keep up with them through social media. If you want to get every new episode of The Big Break downloaded in your podcast feed, just tap the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday.